0: Welcome to the Stand Up Fight Series podcast. I'm your host and president of the Stand Up Fight Series, Chad Mueller, and today I have a really cool episode. So before we start diving in and these next, next episodes with, you know, current fighters and telling their stories, I want to kind of go back at a very pivotal moment in USA Muay Thai and kickboxing. And who I'm going to be talking to with today is his name is Scott McMillan. So Scott, he is the mentor to my mentor, so Johnny Davis is my mentor. he's the one that's you know showing me the ropes and getting me you know teaching me how to be a promoter and all that and he was a two time world champion, and Scott was his mentor uh, and part of you know a little bit of his coaching staff. you know he trained him a lot. Um, he also trained Bill Superfoot Wallace, also Rick and Duke Rufus, and I have some really cool stories about a special fight that happened that really changed the landscape of Muay Thai and kickboxing um, throughout the world, essentially. It was a fight with Rick Rufus and Kit Sungrit, and that was in Las Vegas in 1988. So a lot of you guys have actually seen this video. So it's one of the first times an American kickboxer with the long pants uh, went into a special rules fight versus one of the Thai. So it was you know, American kickboxing versus the Thai boxing. And if you ever seen the video... It's a really cool video. It has millions of views. Uh, let me check real quick. Yeah, so multiple millions of views, and but there's an aspect of that story that's missing. So there's a little bit of drama that happened in between the first or second round um, that's been cut out, and Scott's going to fill us in, and it's something that changes the whole landscape of the fight. and. I'm going to let Scott tell the story because he was there. He was in the corner for Rick Rufus. And it's just a crazy story uh, of something that not many people know about. And then we also talk about, you know, what it takes to be a world champion and train in those times in the 80s and 90s. We call that the golden era of American kickboxing. You know, we were selling out arenas. And there's no reason we can't do that again. And that's my... One of my big goals is to start doing that back here in America and it's starting out here in St. Louis, building these fighters up, you know, turning them into pros, paying them more money, you know, bringing the excitement back to the stand-up fight game. So, without further ado, here's our episode with Scott and, and also, for some reason, the beginning got um, nixed, um, so we kind of jump in, not halfway, but like a, a little quarter way in into it, Um so enjoy. So... Do you think there's just too much saturation now with everything? No, I
1: don't think there's too much saturation. Actually, I, you know, it
0: sort of died and there was no saturation. You know, nobody
1: was putting down any of the terms. When the PKA got in their fight with each other and that stopped, that was the main person. And then you had the ISKA. They were doing promotions, of uh, Mike Sawyer. But he was not as strong, so he did not carry on the big events. And I think that's what happened is we went so long without having any organization putting on large events. And so, you know, obviously something came and filled with, you know, mixed martial arts with UFC and stuff. And we just didn't, no big promoter or organization continued on after the PKA.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I, um, Something you know, Johnny's talked about before was you know, MMA coming in and, and kind of just stealing the spotlight from our sport. But I think I'm seeing a trend of it coming back, you know, back around to kickboxing, back to the stand up. Um, but a lot of it's with smaller gloves, you know. So I don't, I'm not a big fan of the smaller gloves unless you can pay them, um, a, more money. <laughs> um, I'm not a big fan of it. You know, people ask, like, I want you to do a little glove fight. And I'm like, well, I can't pay these guys enough. You know, people are breaking orbitals. They're breaking hands. They're getting cut real bad, real bad KOs. Um, what are your thoughts on those little gloves? Well, my first full contact fights were
1: with junery pads. We did not have boxing gloves the first okay. for the first two or three years of PKA before it went from the... Uh, junery gloves to boxing gloves so i'm a fan of having the boxing gloves
0: <laughs> yeah I bet. so tell me a little bit um you know describe the overall atmosphere you know of the golden era you know as i call it of kickboxing like what made it such a remarkable time in a sport
1: well i think a lot of it was that you know we had little johnny davis you know he got promoted pretty well and we you know there was a lot of TV exposure. You know, we were on ESPN many times. So we had more, they were the main events on a lot of the t- television. And we had some stars. You know, we had Joe Lewis, we had Bill Wallace, we had Rick Rufus. These were people that were exciting, people wanted to see. Bad Brad hepton Jerry Rome, uh, Jerry Tremble, Tony Lopez, D- Demetrius Oakley, Edwards, uh, Ross. These were names that were recognized. Now we don't have a good system rating the pro fighters to have them recognized mm-hmm. we have a good system that has so you got the top 10 fighters and you got the honorable mentions and so people can identify who these fighters are when you put on a big event
0: yeah uh that's something um we're working on right now is creating some rankings for the pros but i think that's um i think that's a big piece that we are missing for sure uh, you mentioned a name in there, Mr. Rick Rufus. So I think you might know where I'm going with this. We we heard a we heard a good story. Um so for you guys listening to this, if you go on YouTube and look up um kickboxing versus Muay Thai fight, um most likely one that will pop up is Rick Rufus and who was it verse? Do you remember his name?
1: It uh, started with an I. I can't think of his. It, at the time, he was the number
0: one Thai kickboxer in Thailand. In hey, the, go, go ahead and in, tell us a little bit about that story. So they, they, they faced off. Um, here, I just found it. It's called Muay Thai versus kickboxing, the greatest fight of all time. Um, and it featured uh, Rick Rufus, who at the time was, what, the light heavyweight champion of the world?
1: Yes. Um, Actually, no.
0: You guys a, were out
1: in Vegas? And we were at the Sands at Vegas fighting there. And it was pretty cool because we're at the Sands in Vegas and it's a sellout crowd in the little arena that it was in, which probably sat three, 4,000. 50% of the audience was from Thailand that came there to watch this man fight. And then the other was you know everybody there in Vegas. And there was several fights that night, but when his came up, that was the big one. And I had never experienced the ties with the music and the dance and the ceremony. It was just something different. And they definitely had a different view on everything. But we went out there, and we started off in the first round, and we knocked him down. We beat him up bad, and we broke broke his jaw. And the fight should have been over, but I think the ref was afraid to stop the fight because the ties were starting to sort of riot. And they threw chairs and ice and everything into the room, ring, and they had to stop it. And they I mean, stopped
0: this is up, in up. between the first round and the second round, right?
1: In between the first round and the second round.
0: So it, it, what's interesting, though, is, you know, you if you watch the fight online, they edit all that out.
1: Well, and I can understand why. <laughs> Chuck Norris was there and they came and security came and ushered him out because they were that close to thinking they were going to have a riot in there. So they kept the fight going. But in between the rounds, I'd say there was 15 people who went there and surrounded this kickboxer. And, you know, they got 10, 12 minutes at least, break or better.
0: After getting knocked down in the first round.
1: Knocked down, and they they all got around him you couldn't see him by the time they cleared it out they started this guy came back in the second round and looked like he was in the first round and looking good and rick rufus and his uh brother was the first i was the second in the ring his brother kept telling him to get up this other guy was doing illegal techniques.
0: he heel stomped him he threw him you know body throws Now, what were the rules for that fight? Because I know Rick was the American kickboxing, so it was above the waist kicks.
1: Well, that's a good question what the rules were. (laughs) (laughs) We understood we were going to have, you know, a regular, but allow legs, but that was it. Not throws, not elbows, not uh, other things that were going on. And, you know, definitely the heel stomp. But the referee, he you know, he had himself in a situation he didn't know what to do and he would not stop the fight. And had Rick stayed down, he would have, the other man would have got disqualified. But, uh, they kept, you know, his brother kept telling him to get up, you know, after he'd do some illegal stuff. So Rick ended up hurting his knee in that fight and, uh, it, you know, he couldn't get back up. But uh, overall, he won two rounds of the fight, convincingly. I ended up having to go to the hospital with Rick and two of the Thai kickboxers and another one. So I know when they x-rayed him, I had to sign in for him. He did have a broken jaw in the first round. But Sands gave me all their money. They just wanted us out because uh, they didn't want any riots in there.
0: Yeah. Wow. In, in and that, that's... What you told me that story and I was just amazed by it because I've watched that fight multiple times, and to kind of hear that insight of it that you know it wasn't exactly what it looks like on the screen, you know, learning that and um, it just kind of blows my mind. And, and that fight was pretty pivotal for kickboxing and Muay Thai, you know, you know, because you had the two best, you know, that American style of kickboxing and. After that fight, was that whenever Rick decided, maybe I should learn this leg kicking thing? It is when he
1: decided and he switched over to that. And, you know, and then he fought K-1. He was K-1 champion and he was the world champion. Rick was a – he went, though, from being a 167 pounds to a 200-and-some-pound built guy very quickly, you know, because it was at that age he was young. You know, he was only 18, 19, and, you know, things changed with Rick. He became a bright big guy.
0: Yeah, that story I I just love that. And um for you guys listening to this, go and check that fight um again if you just type in Boy Thai versus Kickboxing, it will show up as one of the top ones and um it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, there's one right here it has, you know, 13 million uh views on it, uh which is pretty wild.
1: <laughs> it was an exciting time. <laughs> So besides and
0: it, that fight, is there any other fights that kind of stand out, like, in your mind, experiences or stories?
1: Yeah, <laughs> there are quite a few. I was just uh, thinking about some of them uh, in different experiences. You know, the one time uh, when we went to Europe, Johnny was fighting in Europe, and we're over there. And we fly into France, and the guy meets us at the airport, and we go, and we're with him for a About a 45-minute ride to the place where they're going to have weigh-ins and they take us there and nobody speaks english after 45 minutes we realized this guy's our interpreter he he doesn't speak in english (laughs) Uh, and you know johnny uh when we fought out in denver when we fought alvin prouder for the world title Mm we got there and it was 100% alvin prouder everybody wanted alvin prouder and it's just amazing how he won over the crowd at the end they were ch- chanting johnny e, johnny e. and <laughs> and uh, that was pretty cool and like i said uh now, going- how how did johnny win the crowd over oh just because they weren't they were expecting him not to be a, a a force in it and he controlled the whole fight and he was doing beautiful kicks and beautiful everything punches and they just they they, they could tell who was winning the fight and that that was pretty cool and,
0: and so let's talk a little bit about johnny you know so you found him when he was 15. how old were you then when he was 15? i was 23. so you're not much older than him but you johnny you know looks at you he said he says you're like his, his second dad <laughs> yep. you're like his dad um and it's not a big age gap, but that just kinda shows the type of influence and role you had over Johnny. What what's so special about him that stood out to you that said, you know what, maybe I should take this kid on and mentor him and Well,
1: at the moment he was a green belt and he was winning those tournaments. And so, you know, he did have ability. But the desire was what he had. And uh with as far as myself, I was I got myself into a position where I was managing him And I had several other people that I was managing. Uh, And so we were able to get those opportunities, and he took advantage of all of them. He trained all the time. He was always in condition. That fight we took in Europe, for example, we were called less than a week before we were supposed to go to Europe. Neither one of us had passports. We flew down on a Wednesday to Miami, I walked through all the places for getting our passports. Went to the embassy in for France, talked them into getting the janitor pass our stamp our thing for our visas, <laughs> and walked it through in one day and flew out the next morning. <laughs> Things were different. Yeah, very different. <laughs> That's wild. But he was always in shape. He was able to take that fight on a very short notice because he you know he was you know he. He trained – when we knew there was fights, we always had peak time. But his low
0: time was where a lot of people's peak time are. Mm-hmm. And during Johnny's first world title, were you there for that? Oh, yeah. Do you – take me back to that. Like, what do you remember about that night? You know, what do you remember about, like, feeling, like, your excitement and you are proud? Like, what was it as being, like, his trainer, you know – so, like
1: just bring it back to that night if you can. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It, it was so exciting because it was something that we had worked for, and we you know had taken the steps. And I think that was the nice thing about being in the position of being able to get those fights, because they were most of the fights we took were pretty good sized fights. You know, we'd fight in Milwaukee, uh, uh, fight in Atlanta. You know, we fought at the big arenas stepping up to it. And once we had gotten to uh, Denver, I think we had sort of started getting that fan base already. And that's why they took us there for that fight. But uh, no, it was, you know, it was a big event. And that, you know, it was a lot of people and different atmosphere, you know, being that it was that big of an event. It was definitely our first uh, feeling of being like, this is a real world title fight and it was good that you know with the espn like i said that they were there and the interviews and it was just an exciting plus with Coors beer they take it put on a big uh media thing it was neat
0: do you remember how you guys
1: celebrated well we didn't ra- <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a lot of good celebration Johnny felt you know, he just fought 12 rounds with Alvin Prowder, which was, you know, a tremendous fight. And uh, he didn't feel a, a whole lot like celebrating. I had to get him to do whatever he was going to do. It wasn't a lot of fun that night.
0: <laughs> Man, so the one, one big thing, you know, about kickboxing that I've noticed is, you know, back in, you know, the 70s, 80s, and even early 90s, the kickboxers all had that kind of karate background. They're very flashy kicks, um, very exciting, very athletic. And if you look, if you watch, like, glory kickboxing now, it's the total opposite of that. It's, like, very robotic, you know, jab, cross, low kick. Um, do you think kickboxing kind of lost a little bit because they've lost that kind of style? Yeah, I do. You know, I
1: think a lot of people kick I think they're told to, to fight a certain way. And I think that a lot of the uh, flashier kicks sometimes, they may be flashier, but if you watch Jerry Tremble, for example, he was knocking people out with it. Anthony Thompson had a hook kick. He didn't need but one kick. Yeah. When he hit you with that hook kick, you were knocked out. Yeah, Give them- uh, Things like that. Also, you know, there was some crossover boxers, kickboxers, uh, Tex Cobb, for example. You know, he fought some kickboxing bouts, and, you know, it it brought some crossover people because the boxers wanted to come see what he was like in a kickboxing
0: thing. So looking back, you know, as your time as a trainer, what do you consider the most valuable lessons or insights that you gained during that time?
1: Hmm when i we trained when johnny was going to when when we knew it i'd have johnny come down and i'd have him stay with me for 3 to 4 weeks and i'd have all my all my uh sparring partners all lined up and we would train in the morning then we'd have a session in the afternoon and then we'd even have another session sometimes so i think it's the way we were we were training is That was Johnny's living, and it's hard to do it that way now. I think to because the amount of money we're getting paid, they can't do it where that is their full-time job. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of. I think that's a lot of a step back at the moment, too.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, you know, even I know people that fight in the UFC that still have to work full-time. You know, they can't even do it full-time because the page is not there. Um, So that is something I think can change. Um, Whether it's going to be me that does it, Um, I would need like some big rich millionaire that, you know, loves fighting that just has money to throw, you know, not away, but throw into it. Um, Kind of like how the UFC, you know, what happened with them. But I think we can get back to there. It's just going to take the right investors and, and because um, the skills there, I, you know, the talent's there, it's just that the money's not there. And well, uh, but, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, but, you know, it really is that way in all of the fight industry. You mm-hmm. only have the super the heavyweights in boxing. And you really only had, you know, even in Muhammad Ali's time, you only had about eight millions that you're going to that you can think of. And they were the ones that were making a living at it. And some of them weren't even making a living at it. And then the lower weight classes, you only had the top three or four that were really making good money. So, I mean, I don't think the fighting changed. It hasn't changed that much. I think it needs to change.
0: <laughs> the the fighting or the...
1: The pay. Hey,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Trust me, I would love to pay these fighters more as a promoter. Um, but, you know, when we're doing fights and we can't even sell you know, 800 tickets, you know, it it is what it is, but, you know, slowly I think building these fighters up is going to be the way, you know, getting, and it also goes to the fighters. Like you have to be exciting to watch. Like people got to be able to want to watch you fight, you know, and and some of these people, they're just not exciting to watch fight.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of it. You know, Mike Tyson was exciting. Yeah. Uh, You've had bad Brad. He, he always would bring a crowd. He was exciting. You know, Jerry Rome, he could kick a speed bag with his feet, you know, and he was a heavyweight. And, I mean, you know, that was an impressive guy to come watch fight. Uh, Tony Lopez was always exciting. You know, He, there's a lot of fighters. Um, Curtis Bush, you know, he was exciting. And that's what people wanted to come see. And we need those names. We need the breakout stars. And
0: uh, so I, I know a lot of it is the karate background what happened to karate because it became so commercialized and and watered down like you have karate black belts now that can't even throw a proper roundhouse kick what happened with karate
1: (laughs) (laughs) i think uh you take one thing is i was originally taekwondo but Mm -hmm. and i we had an instructor who we didn't teach children we just taught adults And it was pretty much full contact, you know, from the beginning. Now everybody's got buses and they go and get the kids there. So the schools are, uh, they're made to make money. Mm. Our, you know, my, I have a school right now that started in 1972 when I started. We are running continuously ever since then. In fact, I had black belt uh, tests this past week. And we don't teach children, but everybody else has nothing but children. And I think that's what happened to karate.
0: And it's just a shame because if you if you go back and watch those older kickboxing videos, they're exciting, they're dynamic, they're throwing crazy techniques. Um, it, it's just stuff you don't see anymore. And I, and I think that's something we're kind of missing with the kickboxers here in America now is that flashiness with the technique, I think that could go a long way.
1: I, I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, uh, the English fighter named the Prince, you remember him?
0: boxer, the, the theme? Yeah. Yeah. See,
1: he he was an exciting person to watch. He was very exciting. And that's it. You know, you need somebody that. Alvin Prowder in the boxing industry, he was, you know, very exciting when he came into the ring. You know, he was very theatrical. Joe Lewis, he was just he was just a crazy guy. And <laughs> he, he, people always wanted to come watch him fight. Joe was a good guy though. He uh he stayed with me for a while and uh we'd helped train for his second to his last fight. And uh he was he was real hardcore. It was hard to believe how uh dedicated he was to the martial arts.
0: T- tell us a little bit about that training routine, like how, you know, because I think these fighters, they think they train hard, um, but they have no idea, you know, of like a world champion mentality. Because, like, you know, I always thought I'd train real hard and I went to Thailand and I was like, oh, shit, like I am not, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm not doing half of what I should be doing. So do you remember kind of like what he was doing? And
1: Well, like Joe, you know, if we'd get up, we'd do sprints. And everything. Then we'd do some distance, and then he'd train. But then, like, we would go to Fort Bragg and box with the boxing team, you know, and find those kind of sparring partners to for him to you know have to fight. And uh he, you know, he would travel, or I would bring people in for you know. That's one of the reasons he came here is because I had some fighters who could fight with him for you know, as sparring partners. And they're hard to find and, you know, and that's why you need a good stable that has some steady people in it and that you can bring in for training for title fights and, hard, you know, regular fights.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's important. You can't be the best guy in the room and expect to get better. You always got to be bringing people in. And that's um, another thing. is like some gyms won't let people, their fighters cross train because they're worried about their fighters leaving, which is silly.
1: Well, like Johnny Terrio used to call me up, he'd pay Johnny to come up there spar with him, pay all the expenses, and get him to come up there for two weeks prior to two weeks before his fights. A lot of times, and that's the difference with like with John Eve, he was getting uh, real good money because you know everybody in Canada, you know, he was one of the superstar athletes. So, like you said, they were selling out arenas. He was making money.
0: Yep, yeah. and, and for you guys that are listening to this, and you might not know who we're talking about, like Johnny Terrio, um, look up these fighters. You know, go go back, rewind, and look these fighters up because I mean they're pioneers of the sport, and you can learn a lot of great things. Um, I actually took a punch from Rick, uh, or yeah, Rick Rufus. I call it the cobra. It's where you kick, now your leg comes back, you throw like the the same side punch. He's real famous for throwing that. Um, You know, you can add those older techniques that maybe have kind of gotten forgotten about because just time people forget things. And uh, watch these fighters. It's absolutely incredible, you know, what they were able to do technique wise. And you start to see like, oh, I see why this was popular. This is exciting to watch compared to now. Um, Before I get off here, Anything else, you, uh, any other stories you want to share before we get off this?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think (laughs) that's good for today.
0: (laughs) I think so, too. Man, uh, I always have such a good time talking to you. You know, you're such a real, genuine person. And, you know, like I said, when I first met you, I was just like, Johnny, this guy is so awesome. I could talk to him all day. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time, you know, out of your busy schedule and talking to us and kind of sharing a little bit. you know, I, I think it's important for people that are into this sport to know the history of our sport and, and and all this. So just thank you again for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in October. All right. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. All right. See you, Scott.